Hello and welcome to Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. I'm Gemma Milne and in this final episode, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with the Deputy Chief Executive of the IOP, Rachel Youngman. If you've been listening to Looking Glass since the beginning, you'll know Angela Saini started the first series in conversation with Rachel. They spoke about Rachel's reasons for commissioning the series and her hopes for what it could achieve. Today, we're going to come full circle, and I'm excited to revisit those themes, along with reflecting on the many other ideas the past three series have brought up. We're going to be talking about what we've learned, from the intersection of science research and activism, to putting people at the heart of science-based solutions. Before we kind of kick off, for anyone who hasn't um, come across you yet or hasn't listened to the the entry episode to the very first season where we got a really lovely intro to you, um, introduce yourself again for us. Thanks very much, Gemma. I'm Rachel Youngman and I'm Deputy Chief Executive at the Institute of Physics. I am not a physicist, I should declare that absolutely up front, but I come from a background of working, first of all, in the legal profession, in quite a commercial environment, and then moving into social justice and human rights and and then finding my way to physics and the Institute of Physics about eight years ago. So something of an unusual career, possibly. But yes, uh, that physics is, uh, I suppose, at the heart of what I do now. I'd be curious to know, what was your, I guess, perception of physics before you worked at the IOP? And then how has that changed, you know, through the process of applying for the job and now being there eight years on? How do you see the field? You're obviously very much on the inside now, but maybe you can remember what it was like looking at it as an outsider. Yeah, I guess I would say I've kind of gone from a mass of confusion to an absolute love of physics and, and the work that, uh, that physicists do. I think like so many people, if I cast my mind back to when I studied physics and I did do O-level as it was then, it was to me a subject that was quite complicated I don't think, and unfortunately, this is still sometimes the case, that I wasn't taught physics by a physicist. Um, My teacher came from a background of biology. And that's not unusual still today to find uh, that it's not always the case that teachers of physics are have physics as their degree or their background. And that can, you know, it's like everything, isn't it? Some people are, uh, have a better aptitude to different subjects, but also much of it depends on how it's taught too. So, you know, in, that was certainly a, uh, my experience, that it, it wasn't a brilliant experience. And I think I just looked more towards some of the art subjects. In a way, I suppose coming to the Institute of Physics now and having seen what physics is about, at the end of the day, it's about our world, it's the world we live in and how that world works and finding out how it works and how it, you know, it can work for human beings, particularly with the, the big challenges that we've got. And climate is, is such a big challenge and physics is so important to that. But I think, you know, it is a, it's a subject that actually brings so many opportunities for young people. And in a way, coming into the Institute of Physics has taught me, first of all, what it is and what it isn't, but just how vital it is as well. So I suppose I've gone from being timid about it uh, to being a big advocate for it. Uh, And this podcast series has been part of trying to perhaps, uh, you know, bring that to life a little bit more. I love that. And it's interesting that you reflect upon 
your teacher because um you know I, I had a very inspirational physics teacher um at high school Dr McDonald but he told us about his research you know what he did and it was inspiring to hear about the reality of what was happening in the real world with physics and I think perception is always a big thing that um can stumble a lot of public engagement when it comes to physics. And of course, again, that's another theme that we spoke a lot about in the series. But let's let's kind of rewind back a little bit before we get too deep into the themes just in our intro discussion. Why did you, or, or specifically the IOP at large, commission Looking Glass in the first place? We've had three seasons, different themes um, in terms of the, the titles of the series, going from society to, uh, you know, the green economy to climate solutions, but a lot of intersecting ideas. Um, why did you commission it? And, and what do you think has been achieved or, or rather has it achieved what you're hoping for in the first place? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And if we wind back to 2020, it doesn't seem that long ago, but, you know, gosh, so much has happened since then. The, there was a very practical reason for doing it, and that was that at the time the Institute of Physics was celebrating its 100th anniversary. And interestingly, the, the IOP was started in, or the discussions to form the IOP started in, in 1918 during the Spanish flu pandemic. And so, of course, in 2020, we thought, well, this was pre-COVID. It was just at the start of 2020. But we thought it would be great to have a series of conversations about, you know, how physics has evolved over that period and, and its place in a modern society. And of course, when we started it, immediately we went into the pandemic and lockdown and, and other things happening in society. And I think it just came at that time that it showed just how important physics is, a science is. People were starting to see more about science, hear more about science every day in their sitting rooms, listening to Patrick Vallance and listening to Chris Whitty and others talk about the pandemic and, and the impact it was having and what its likely direction was going to be. And I think, you know, we suddenly found ourselves in a world where science had perhaps come more to the forefront of people's minds. And that was a that was a good thing and it was positive, but it also threw up some challenges as well, I think. And and I think through the 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 podcast series, we've been able to pick up on some of those themes. And and if you think about 2020, it wasn't just the pandemic and the impact on health, it was also inequality and starting to see that inequality in society with, you know, people affected differently because of who they were where they were, where they were living, and a global problem as well. So not just here in the UK, but it was being felt around the world. So there were all sorts of things that were playing out in society. And, and I do think, I'm sure that historians and, and social scientists will look back in, in time and say, you know, what the impact was from 2020 on society and the future generation. But I think it would be difficult to underplay the impact of that year and 2021. And of course, we still see that and we might well see that for a generation to come. So putting the podcast on at that time, I think we started to realise that we were playing into 
a society that was really calling out for some better discussions about these big societal issues, uh, about health, about inequality. But I think, uh, you know, what we've tried to do is really look to the future, think about the future generation, but particularly make sure that physics is heard and seen but alongside other disciplines as well. Because for me, and perhaps this is a reflection of my own background, it's always been about hearing from different disciplines and how the combination of those backgrounds and experiences and approaches to big challenges that society face, the impact that can have. And and I think that is what the podcast series has done done really well. I'm really pleased that a lot of people, you never know when you start these things, do you, Gemma, whether, you know, you're going to get kind of three people listening and then everyone switching off. But, you know, to have, you know, to know that there has been 100,000 downloads is, is, I suppose, some validation that people have found what we've done interesting and perhaps a bit surprising for a hundred year old organisation. So looking back on this third series, I'm I'm curious, were you surprised by how much of the work of the physicists and other scientists that we that we interviewed and we included has touched upon the zeitgeist, you know, very much current concerns both here in the UK and globally? How much do you think is sort of the responsibility of a scientific body like the IOP to remain engaged with what's going on with the zeitgeist? Yeah, I, I think we have an incredible responsibility to do that. And, and you know, you can, can see through this period of the pandemic uh, just how important it's been to hear from scientists and to see uh, the science. I mean, we almost saw the science sort of being done live every single day. They were finding out the data. They were trying to interpret that data. They were trying to understand, um, you know, what the, the direction of, of this virus was going to be and the impact it was going to have on people. And I I think we have a huge responsibility to be able to communicate that science really well. And in our case, communicate the physics really well. I think one of the things that is difficult for people, and I found this difficult when I came into IOP, is the amount of uncertainty that there is. You know, I I like to operate in a world where I know what's happening and I know what I'm doing and I've got the facts to my hand and, you know, I'm able to present the evidence. And, you know, maybe that's more my background of having, you know, spent a lot of time in the legal profession. And so it's a different way of approaching things. But I think for science, you are operating by nature in a fairly high degree of uncertainty. And that, of course, is the fun for scientists because, well, maybe they don't all find it fun all the time, but you know, there's a lot of, of, uh, of work being done in order to understand and to find out uh, you know, what, what is going to happen, whether that's with climate or whether it's with, with health and the pandemic. And you know, all these issues so important to society and yet you know, not all the answers are known and the scientists there to try and find that out. I think the one thing we do have a responsibility to do is in campaigning. And I know this came up in the the first episode of of this series, but I think the campaigning side is so important because you're trying to push for change. And when you're trying to do that in a science organisation, and I find this myself, it can be quite challenging because the scientists are saying, yeah, but you know, the evidence not sure we can say that. You know, we're still trying to figure that out. And I'm saying, yeah, but we need to give those answers. You know, we need to be able to say something in order to 
you know, impress upon government or whoever it might be that things need to change. So I think there's always a tension there, but I think there's a massive role for a, a body like ours, a learning society, a professional body like ours, to be able to present that evidence and to help people to understand why there is uncertainty, but also to do that in a way that understands what others are trying to do, what the social scientists, the behavioural experts, what the policy makers, what the public affairs people are trying to do as well. And that's why I think that meeting of minds is so important. I think if physicists just sit there in their lab, which they don't, you know, I mean, a lot of them out there doing a lot of communication, but if they're sitting there in their lab doing their research, that's absolutely brilliant and we need them to do that. But we need them to be present and talking to us and listening to us and working with us. So I think there's always a bit of a tension there. And I was interested that that, that kind of came through in, in what Paul and, uh, and Fatima were saying in episode one. I, I want to build a little bit on this, both the sort of the word activism um, and then campaigning, but also this idea of radical change or radical solutions, which we also, you know, the theme of which came up, um, you know, a little bit, uh, well, actually quite a lot throughout the, throughout the various series. And I guess the reason I'm, I'm curious about this is, is you know, I have this conversation a lot um, as, as someone who writes about and kind of acts in the, the science space with researchers where some feel very strongly that their responsibility is to try and make the world a better place um, through their research, but crucially then not just publishing a paper, but finding ways to um, be activists. And that doesn't just mean writing an opinion piece once for The Guardian. That means getting out, being, you know, on the front lines, shall we say, of what it means to be an activist today. Whereas others sort of see their responsibility as knowledge creation um, or, you know, my background's pure maths. So you speak to a lot of pure mathematicians. They, it's very much to be honest, for fun, a lot of the time, um, you know, there's great things being done with math, uh, with maths, but the reality is a lot of the time, the thing that motivates you is because you enjoy it and you find it fascinating. So how do you as an institution engage with the members, engage with the physics community to have that conversation about, you know, how do you actually do physics in the real world? You know, coming to the Institute of Physics, the one thing I have found, and I've, you know, obviously I've, I've met and spoken to and worked alongside a lot of physicists over the past past eight years. I, I think the one thing I would f say is that they are always passionate about their subject and passionate to talk about their subject. You know, that that goes back often when you talk to physicists, it will go back to their childhood. And they will talk openly about that, that, you know, the first time that they, often it's uh, looking at the stars and, you know, the planets and, you know, that, so that's their sort of entry point. But there is um, a, uh, there is a passion there for a discipline that I, I I might be saying something now that's going to upset the entire legal profession, but I I don't see that in other professions that I've worked in. Um, that total passion for your discipline. There's a passion in lots of people for change, but it's a passion for the discipline that I see coming through in physicists. And I think there is a real desire to to talk about what they do. I think that the challenge is doing that in a way that is translatable for people. 
Um, and that is a real struggle. And it comes back to that point of uncertainty. And trying, I remember at a university, I spoke to a researcher and uh, they were working um, on uh, their, their research. And I said, so what's the what's the outcome going to be of this? You know, I mean, naive question to ask probably, but, you know, so what? how's it going to make my life better? And, and, and they really didn't want to, to answer that. And I kept pushing and pushing. And eventually they said, well, if it works, you know, depending what happens, and it could be years, but it would be a way to detect cancer in a less invasive way, you know, through biopsies and things, it would be less invasive. Now, that to me is incredible. That person is working on that. And that, you know, gives me hope for the future. But of course, from the physicist's perspective, they're thinking, well, I don't know whether my research is going to work. So, you know, I think there always is that kind of gap between what the researcher is doing and what the outcome will be. But the one thing that uh, that is important is the passion and the passion to communicate. So you've got to harness that, I think, and do it in a way that's that's really translatable for people. The, the importance of influencing policymakers specifically came up a lot in the series. So beyond, you know, communicating to the, the broader public, specifically, um, how do you bring about uh, real change, change that can happen now or in the, in, the, in the sort of soon practical immediate future? And, you know, building on what you're saying there, it's, you, you know, I see that in researchers a lot. They're kind of like, well, if you want me to speak truth the answer is normally i don't know but at the same time everything i'm seeing points to the fact that we need to do something um and that's not to say that you know particularly in in the world of climate change which is what we were focusing on mainly in the the two series that i hosted um it's not to say that there's uh, a, a lack of agreement for goodness sake but the point is is that if you've got that sensibility um of a researcher which is to really try to get to truth somehow um it's also quite difficult to then say we must do x y and z in very specific terms so what did you glean from these discussions about influencing change um you know particular policy suggestions or approaches to um to changing policy that came up in the series yeah i mean i think i think there's a few things here and one is that we've we do need to make sure that the access to funding remains open um, and some of that is, of course, we need new money, but some of it is just making sure that, that the scientists can still access funding. And, and obviously the EU funding is, in, is important. And I think it was uh, in the episode about water uh, that that was mentioned from Kevin McGuigan. Um, and he's right, you know, that, that some scientists will have access to existing funds. Others will find that things change in the political world. Uh, and, you know, that has an impact. And obviously that's been the case with with Brexit, there have been some some changes, and we need to make sure that that you know is uh, is still strong. There's still funding there. I think the other thing that we must remember is that for you know physics, uh, all the sciences are reliant on people. Um, we need the people, and we need the skills in the country, um, and we need them also to have access to collaboration. 
and uh, and that has to remain strong and there are you know things that we can do around that i think impressing upon the importance of peeping, be, people being able to travel of visas of access to facilities and in fact one of the the things that we've been looking at which is is on climate is to increase the opportunity for research between the uk and and physicists in african countries in sub-saharan africa particularly on weather management systems and on uh, energy and climate. And, you know, th- those types of things, those policy level decisions um, need to be made. And I think it is our job to impress upon uh, the, you know, the decision makers, uh, whether it's here in the UK or in other countries, just how important that is. You know, it, it's not about self-serving. It's not just about uh, saying, well, we want, you know, more research done because it might eventually lead to something. If we don't have that level of investment, we don't have the people coming in, then I think we are storing up a great big problem. So I think it's possible to do that. But I think, you know, it is difficult in an economic climate uh, that with all the will in the world, the politicians can make good noises about climate. um, But the cost of achieving net zero and some of the targets that have been set is massive. And I think our role, particularly as a professional body, is to really champion and push uh, for the need for for finance and for money to come into physics research. So that's one of the, the sort of practical things we can do. And obviously what we're trying to do is saying, look, you know, we're not about reinventing the wheel. Um, it's also about building more on what's already there. So making sure those facilities uh, remain you know, really strong, the access to those facilities is good. And as I say, you know, that brings in things like immigration and all sorts of things. Speaking of various different voices and types of voices, um, you mentioned young people quite a lot, both um, in this discussion and also in the introduction one. So let's let's dive in. I mean, at the end of the first and second series, we had two young, younger <laughs> physicists on. We had Sophie Martin from the Blackett Lab family, um, who's an early career researcher. And then we had Luke Wheeler, an analyst at Carbon Intelligence. I mean, how important has it been to hear from the next generation? And what's the next step in making sure that those voices are still being heard and included um, when it comes to the the work of the IOP and physics as a whole? Yeah, I I think that, you know, everything we do, we need to be thinking about the future. You know, all of us, we have to think about the future. and, And that's particularly important in things like climate. I think we also have to understand and, you know, sometimes it's difficult because, you know, people like you and me are steeped in all of this and we're thinking about it every day and wondering how we can make a difference. But the reality is for a lot of people, a lot of young people, they're not thinking every day about climate. You know, they may have experienced a very hot summer but they're not necessarily, that's not on the top of their, their list. You know, they're thinking about, you know, paying the bills and the jobs that they're going to get and so forth. I, I think one of the things that is so important is that we make physics much clearer, much more understandable of what it means in terms of both career opportunities and there are huge career opportunities with physics because we need the diversity. If you don't haven't got the diversity in something as important as physics in terms of what it does, then you are not going to get the best solution. So, you know, I, I would say that diversity and inclusion, I know it's got a bit of a bad rap, but I think what it what it does is, you know, sometimes people forget that, yeah, it is the morally 
right thing to do to embrace diversity and to make sure there is inclusion. Uh, it's also legally right as well. So you know, there, are, there are laws about it. But it makes for better business. It makes for better physics. It makes for better science if you've got that diversity of thought and background and experience. And, and I think, you know, you, you, when I, I'm talking to our early career researchers, younger generation researchers, students, you know, they're growing up in a world where that really is important to them. And I think for an organisation like ours, we, we really need to be able to respond well to that and to hear their voices and to make sure that we are not only relevant as an organisation, because obviously there's something about the sustainability of IOP, but we are really making sure that people are hearing from that young generation, that they're part of thinking about the solutions. The fact is that we need more young people. So I think, you know, part of our responsibility, and particularly with our, our campaign Limitless, which is to, to encourage more young people to study physics at 16 and to make sure that there is a diversity there, it's it's about carrying those messages of, of what physics can bring in terms of career, but why it is so important as well. And I think we have to do both those things. So hearing from people like Sophie and, and Luke, I think is vital. And, and in fact, as a, you know, as a leader in, in IOP, one of the things that I often think about is not in a sort of virtuous way, but just in, in terms of, you know, who am I making a decision for? I have to make decisions every day. We all have to in our, our working lives. Who am I making those decisions for? And increasingly, I think the importance is thinking about that next generation. It, you're not just making decisions for today, you're making decisions for the future generation and making sure that they can pick up where where you left off at the end of the day. We're kind of like custodians, aren't we? We have to hand over this planet at some point to the future leaders and, you know, to have them as as part of of that voice of the decisions we make is really important, I think. Is there anything in the series that's come up in the various discussions, bearing in mind that there's been lots of different types um, of physicists, but also um, different experts from different generations, different backgrounds, different countries, and so on and so forth. Was there anything that surprised you, maybe, um, or particularly struck you that came out in these discussions? Maybe something that you've then turned to some of your colleagues at the IOP and gone, God, we haven't really thought about that. Let's do something about it, you know? And I guess the, the bigger question is what's been the biggest learning um, from Looking Glass for the IOP? But I would be curious to, you know, when it comes to things like podcast and media, it's more the sort of the little anecdotes or little stories that strike you that ultimately then lead to change. And I'd love to hear if there's any examples you can think of of that. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think we've been quite I like to think we've been quite brave in choosing uh, some really interesting subjects with some interesting speakers. And, you know, I, I, I've always been fascinated by the Indigenous uh, knowledge. And I think going back to that episode, which was in the first series where we heard from Carolina Behe, uh, who works with the Indigenous people in Alaska, and, you know, so much richness there. And thinking about, you know, gosh, are we, how are we able to incorporate 
that type of knowledge into our thinking about science and how does that work and does that sit well? And I remember actually when that, that episode came out, sort of doing a little bit of a, of a gulp, thinking, oh gosh, if we, you know, are we going to upset some of the, the physicists that you know, we're sitting here talking about indigenous knowledge? But actually these things are really well received, I think, by people because it's all part of just thinking much more broadly about the world we live in and how people live and, and the stories as well, you know, the storytelling through the generations too. So I think you know, thinking beyond perhaps our own knowledge and our own uh, sort of view of the world has been the, you know, that's where I think a podcast can or can be so rich um, that you can really hear from people that you, you probably wouldn't otherwise and, and put them alongside the more traditional views or what we might think of as the more, certainly the more Western views about, about science. So I think some of that has been fascinating. I do think it has also reinforced for me just this whole issue of fairness and access to solutions. And we've heard a lot, I know, from people who are working in Africa and, you know, who are based there, people working in um, the sort of what called the global north. And I think the, you know, it's really prompted me to think about that whole issue of, of fairness and inequality, un- unfortunately, that still exists in the world and, and how that plays into the passion for young people as well to see more fairness. And I think, you know, if you go back to your first question about when the when the looking glass started you know 2020 of course we we didn't just have a pandemic we also had the murder of george floyd and you know when i saw that happen and we were in the middle of the podcast series uh, and thinking about how that would uh, play out in people's minds and what our responsibility was as an organization as well you know did we become an organization that said you know put up its statement um, and said, you know, that that was shocking and appalling and then carried on? Or did we think, actually, what do we have to do? What change do we have to make? And I think it has probably, and the podcast series has certainly been a part of this, but it's been a period of really reflection and thinking about our own organisation who we are as leaders of that organisation, what we need to do, our responsibility to make sure that that younger generation can come into an organisation, can come into a profession that is inclusive and can really drive forward some solutions to problems that the world faces, but in a way that is fair. And that is a really difficult thing. And I, I loved how, how uh, uh, you know, Kevin put it, I think, in the water episode, you know, is he optimistic about the future? I think he, he used the expression uh, realistic optimism. Um, and I think that was probably a, a good a good reflection of where we're at, that we should be realistic and optimistic about the future. But, you know, I, I do think that we have seen through this period such a transformation and the episodes have really kind of prompted, I hope, some thinking around that uh, outside the norm. So, Rachel, bearing in mind everything we've been speaking about in terms of, you know, being inspired and influenced by all these amazing voices that's been featured across um, the series, what's next for the IOP? We need to keep the reason why we did this going. 
you know, and, and going back to, to that reason, you know, it was about the diversity of voices. So, you know, physicists clearly have an important role to play in this. Um, but so do others as well. And those are economists and lawyers and other scientists and engineers. And, you know, so we, we need to make sure, I think, that we are keeping those those conversations and that connection going. And a podcast has been an amazing way to do that. I think, you know, one of the things I'm very conscious of, and it's come up in in the series, is, you know, the decisions that we take from now are so important for a future generation. Um, and, uh, you know, the, if you look at this through the uh, the complexity of it, and you look at it through, for example, the, the sustainable development goals, you've got one that's there for climate, you've got another one there that is about refugees. And if you just take those two, I mean, all the research shows that the, the problems of refugees are going to just multiply because of displacement. And that displacement is not only going to be because of conflict, it's going to be because of weather. Uh, and, and climate events. And, and so, you know, there's, there's an amazing amount of complexity in this. And we know that. And we've heard about that from the different contributors to the podcast. And I think we can't underestimate that. And those, so those conversations and those ethical decisions that we take, you know, how do we think about um, equity in net zero, you know, they're really complex. Um, and I don't think anyone has really put their finger on the solution. But we do need to think about those. But bringing it back to IOP, I think one of the things that we can do is, first of all, make sure those conversations do continue and that we're part of driving for that. But I think the other thing that we can do is make sure that the right voices are there and that we're really thinking about the future. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons why I think for, uh, you know, being a hundred year old organization, and we talked about this in the cult cancel culture episode, that you can easily think, well, you know, it's an old, tired uh, institution. But actually, our role is to really be thinking about diversity and inclusion and how we hardwire that into uh, the ecosystem. And that's a complex ecosystem. You know, it's the, it's the education component, it's funding uh, for the research and development, it's having the right ecosystem for innovation um, and for rolling out the solutions. And so, you know, we need to be really alert to making sure that those, those ecosystems are inclusive so that we get that diversity of voices coming through as we start to really nail down uh, some of the solutions to the, the challenges of, of equity in net zero. So I hope that we can continue to be part of that. We're already doing that. And so I think that's really important. But the other thing, and I just just come back to this, you know, we talk about uh, the, the issues of climate um, almost in a way that I think for some people, and I would include myself in this, can seem insurmountable. You know, here am I sitting here talking about the complexities of, you know, getting equity in um, distribution of carbon budgets and things like that. You know, it's really complex stuff. And I think sometimes, you know, you've got to keep the confidence of the public in this as well and really think about how you how you do that, how you keep people engaged with this. And it doesn't seem all kind of really insurmountable or something that is at a, a sort of big macro level with, you know, it's only governments that can solve this. And so, I think we mustn't forget, and I think it was Fatima Ibrahim in the first episode of this last series, who uh, said, you know, we've got to also show, um, I'm paraphrasing her a bit, but show the art of the possible as well. And some of that happens at a really local level. 
And so if you look at something, for example, I was looking the other day at the Earthshot Prize, which, you know, admittedly, it's backed by the, you know, it's initiated by the the Duke of Cambridge, so it's got a certain profile. But there was, I don't know whether you remember, but there was a a 14-year-old schoolgirl there um, who had found a solution for clean air, a, a problem that she could see in her local area in India. And she had used her science to think about how you could solve that problem um, that she was seeing affecting uh, street vendors. And I think, you know, that sort of initiative, it's very, very small and it's tucked away in a local community. But I think, you know, we can't underestimate how many people in communities are already thinking about this. And I think we should do more to celebrate that. And I think sometimes that kind of almost gets drowned out by the challenges of, of climate. Um, and for our part, you know, we're we're very involved in an initiative in Africa called uh, BT Young Scientist. Um, and that was started by an amazing physicist called uh, Tony Scott in Dublin. And it's, a, it's an exhibition of science done by school children in Tanzania. And there, they're just seeing local problems. They're using local things that they can find around them because they don't always have the access to the, you know, the laboratories and the equipment that some countries might have. And they're coming up with solutions. And I think we shouldn't forget that, you know, that's a young generation and they're already thinking about how they can be part of the the solution. So I think, you know, just as we talk about the complexities and Looking Glass has shown that, um, that there's a lot of complexity in it, nor should we forget uh, that sometimes there is a local community that's doing something and we should recognise and, and be aware of that. So the more we can do to champion that, the more we can do to get young people, just as Greta uh, has got uh, you know a whole host of young people to uh, to take to the streets quite quite rightly uh, about climate and the urgency of this. Um, I think there's an awful lot that we can do to try and inspire young people to use their science and innovation. So that's a clear role for the Institute of Physics. So I take hope out of all of this. I think just building on that art of the possible thing, it's it's not just saying how can we inspire or how can we ensure we're plugged in to um to what's happening beyond this 100 year institution but rather pairing that power together the community power the local power with the the power that an institution like the IOP has and so it's exciting to hear you talk about that and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next one final thing before you go though Rachel would love to hear your your chosen or favorite quote from across the series that would be great to kind of leave all the listeners with as we sign off Yeah, I mean, so many great quotes. I think if I had one, it is one that just struck me for its simplicity. And it was in the first uh, episode of the first series, and it was on climate crisis. And it was Emily Schuchberg, who is an incredible atmospheric scientist. And she said, uh, we have to learn to live on the planet, not off the planet. And I think she is so right. One planet. Rachel, thank you so much for coming and and reflecting with me a little bit, having a little pause um, and reminding everyone how how many amazing voices we've had over the last three seasons. Hopefully it will inspire people who haven't listened to everything to go back and dip in and out of some of the episodes or or listen again if you're so inclined. Um, But Rachel, thanks so much for coming and and joining us for this episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Gemma, as well, two series. Uh, Thank you for for doing it. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Not at all. Anytime. Yeah. <laughs>
Huge thanks to Rachel Youngman, both for joining me for this episode, but also for her role in this series. And a huge thanks to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget, if you've missed any of the episodes from the last three series, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Looking Glass. For me and all of the Looking Glass team, goodbye. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producers are Fatuma Kera and Rosie Stouffer, with editorial guidance from Sarah Stolarz. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The original music is by Alex Portfelix, with mixing by Nassan Da Silva. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan, and the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from more diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.